Uh, We're going to be continuing that series anchored again this week. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Isaiah uh, chapter 46. And I'd like to begin this morning by reading verses 1 through 13. Uh, Our sermon this morning is titled, Anchored in the Unchanging God. And just as a brief side note, if I don't give you much eye contact today, I'm actually nursing a bit of a sore neck. So especially to the people on the right side of the room... (laughs) It's not because I don't love you, I'm just a bit sore today, so I'm just a bit orthopedically challenged, not trying to give you the cold shoulder. Isaiah 46, verses 1 through 13. This is what it says. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop... They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to grey hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me? that we may be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. You transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the men of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. This is the word of God. Well, in her 1995 debut album, it was Joan Osborne who released a song called One of Us. And in this song, she forwards a question for us all to ponder. What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. It's a curious question. And yet imagine if that question were answered in the positive and we suddenly discovered that after all, God was in fact just one of us. Where would that leave us? What if we suddenly discovered that God was something less than what we believed him to be? What if we discovered that God was no longer good, but that he liked to play a few innings in the paddock of evil from time to time? What if God was no longer wise and we had to receive his counsel with a grain of salt because, well, he got things wrong from time to time? What if God were no longer loving? We, the redeemed, would find ourselves in the utmost state of despair, right? Well, as we enter the 46th chapter of the book of Isaiah, we find the people of God in quite a state of despair themselves. You see, having spent decades in Babylonian exile under foreign rule, it seems they had forgotten who God is and who he had promised to be toward them. 
And in earlier chapters through the prophet Isaiah, we find God in some sense defending himself against the accusations of his own people. Look at uh, Isaiah 40, verse 27. It says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. You see, they'd had such a healthy dose of the wooden spoon, they thought God had abandoned them. Abandoned them. They'd forgotten that although they had been unfaithful to God, God would always remain faithful to them. And in responding to their accusations and their doubts, chapter 46 forms part of a long discourse where God seeks to jog their memory as to who it is that he is towards them. You see, Isaiah's words are to remind them that though their fidelity might change, though their circumstances might change, though their trust in God's plans might change, God doesn't change. That's what Isaiah is calling to their mind. And that's really good news for us to hear today. I think one of the most disenchanting realities we face in this life is that things change. Uh, I'm only 31, but I've already become acquainted with the reality that our bodies change. Right? I used to be able to bend forward and put my hands flat on the ground. But uh, after back surgery, I have to stretch before I can tie my shoes or unstack the dishwasher. <laughs> Bring on the resurrection, right? Circumstances change. We have close friends that move interstate. Our loved ones pass away. Pandemic lockdowns resurface. Circumstances change. And then I think hardest of all, people change. Now granted, sometimes they change for the better, but I think it can be really disheartening sometimes to catch up with an old friend, perhaps one you haven't seen in a while, and you're hoping you can just pick up where you left off, only to discover that It's not quite what it used to be. You've changed. They've changed. Those things you had in common are no longer there. And you find yourself just longing for the good old days. It can be quite disheartening. But something we can anchor our soul in is the reality that God, in his being, in his perfections, in his purposes and his promises, doesn't change. He is the only one with whom you can truly pick up where you left off. And as people who are called to place our trust in him, it's really quite important for us to know that God is a God who doesn't change. The Dutch theologian Herman Barbing put it this way. He said, The doctrine of God's immutability is of the highest significance for religion. The contrast between being and becoming marks the difference between the creator and the creature. Every creature, you and me, is continually becoming. It is changeable constantly striving, seeks rest and satisfaction and finds this rest in God, in him alone, for only he is pure being and no becoming. Hence in scripture, God is often called the rock. I love that. We have an unchanging rock on which we can build our lives. So let's take a closer look at our passage today where we're going to find God through the prophet Isaiah jogging the memory of his people. And my prayer this morning is that our memory would be jogged also. Uh, Let's read verses 1 through 2 again there in Isaiah 46. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. You see, the first thing that's highlighted in our passage today is the futility and even insanity of idolatry. Before our gaze is directed towards the unchanging God, Isaiah calls us to acknowledge our unreliable idols. 
we're introduced to two Babylonian gods, Bel and Nebo. Now, if you peer at those names for long enough, you actually might start to recognize them, albeit indirectly, right? Do you remember some of the names of Babylonian kings? Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar. You see, the names of the kings in Babylon were derivative uh, from the Babylonian pantheon. And within the Babylonian pantheon, Bel and Nebo were father and son, respectively. And what would happen is that every year, as a New Year's celebration, they would bring the images of Bel and Nebo through the city of Babylon as a kind of token of good fortune for the coming year. They would write down on the tablets of destiny all the good things that were going to happen for the year. And if you brought the idols in, they were going to help you write good things. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the movie Groundhog Day, when punks Tony Phil has to get brought out so they can see whether or not they're going to have an early winter, or sorry, an early spring. But as much as this event was celebrated in Babylon, everyone got really excited about it. From the perspective of Isaiah, he looks at this procession. And he doesn't see a laudable procession as such, but really a laughable procession. Um, These so-called patron gods weren't providing good fortune to the city at all. The only thing they were doing was compromising the orthopedic integrity of the animals carrying them, right? He says they're Born as burdens on weary beasts. At the end of the day, silver and gold, they're pretty dense metals. These idols would have been heavy, right? These so-called gods are meant to be carrying the burdens of the city, but a couple of poor Babylonian camels are carrying them, right? What's Isaiah doing? He's he's mocking these foreign gods. With my neck this morning, I'm feeling a bit like a Babylonian camel. Carrying something heavy, right? But this mockery of idols is something that Isaiah has done before. He makes a career out of it, perhaps most vividly in Isaiah chapter 44. Let's have a look. This is verses 13 through 17. He says, The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with its planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied." Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. What's described here is insanity, right? This guy is bowing down to something he had formerly swung an axe at. It's generally not a good principle of religious devotion. Don't bow to the things you swing axe at, right? But in our passage today, in verses 6 through 7, Isaiah is doing the same thing, just in a condensed form. Verses 6 and 7, he says, Those who lavish gold from the purse, taking money out of your wallet, basically, and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it, not the other way around. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. And if one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Isaiah is saying that you cannot place your hope in idols. They're empty, they're manufactured, they're unreliable, 
They cannot help you when calamity strikes and you can't anchor your life upon them. But sadly, so often we do. Now, idolatry can take on many different forms and has done, through, done so throughout church history. I mean, For example, in the Apostle Paul's day, he had to exhort the church in Corinth that it was no longer appropriate for them, given their redeemed status before Almighty God, for them to dine in pagan temples. They had to give that lifestyle up. And he says, if you continue to do so, you're basically dining with the devil. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 10. That's one way idolatry uh, can manifest. But then at the time of the Reformation, guys like John Calvin, the, the idolatry that he was concerned with was that the people of God had allowed religious art to make its way into the church and was incorporated into worship services. And he feared it was leading people astray. He saw them praying to images of God and martyred saints and all that kind of thing. And he said, idolatry, we can't have that here. Still happens today with the veneration of religious art. But in our day, at least in the West, idolatry typically surfaces in a more insidious fashion. Well, it's true. We can still commit what I like to call idolatry proper. Like when Christians go overseas and they decide that going to visit the Buddhist temple and buying all the merchandise is a cool idea. <laughs> or perhaps we, um, we sleep in and we miss the pump class, so we end up going to the yoga class instead. <laughs> you see, we can be guilty of Isaiah 44 type idolatry as well. I don't think this category of idolatry gets talked about enough, personally. But usually, in the West, our idolatry is not so much bowing down to the wrong God at the wrong temple, but most of the time we take a good thing. Something that's not evil in and of itself. Something that God has graciously granted to us to enjoy. And we elevate it to a status that it was never designed to hold. And we seek gratification and identity and life from it to a degree it was never designed to give. You see, the problem with idols is that you ask them to carry you when you really end up carrying them. Like these beasts in Babylon. They weigh you down and destroy you. The prophet Isaiah a contemporary of Isaiah said it best. He says, with their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. That's what happens with idolatry. And the examples of how this plays out in our life are manifold, right? I mean, listen, we, we ought to love our spouses. I mean, husbands, we should visit Ephesians 5 often. I was confronted by it recently, quite challenged. Well, I mean, we ought to have the words nourish and cherish, like tattooed to the back of our eyelids, right? We ought to love our spouse, but we ought not to worship them. You see, if you're looking to receive all of your affirmation from them and locate all of your identity in them, you'll crush them and your relationship will suffer for it. You ought to work really hard at your job. You should actually be really good at it. I would applaud and encourage a healthy sense of career ambition. Solomon said it well, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. But if you throw all your eggs into the basket of career, you'll become enslaved to it. And if you ever lose your job through termination, redundancy, bankruptcy, injury, or some other change in your circumstances, it will crush you. And trust me, I'm speaking from experience on that one. When I moved from physiotherapy back to retail, it exposed some things in my heart concerning my own idols. You see, our idols are fleeting things and they're subject to change. 
Many centuries ago, one of the early church fathers, Athanasius, wrote a volume called Against the Gentiles. It's one of the earliest uh, apologetic volumes you can read about. Um, We have William Lane Craig, but they had Athanasius, right? And he was defending the Christian faith by exposing just some of the insanity of the pagan idolatry that was going on around him, right? And one of the points he made is that at the end of the day, their idols were subject to change. Look at what he says. The English might be slightly older too. He says, For often we see images which have grown old renewed, and those which time or rain or some other of the animals of the earth have spoiled restored. In which connection one must condemn their folly, and that they proclaim as gods things of which they themselves are the makers, and themselves are salvation of objects which they themselves adorn with their arts to preserve them from corruption, and beg that their own wants may be supplied by beings which they well know need attention from themselves. What's he saying? He's saying, don't you think it's just a little bit odd that if you carve an idol out of wood that that piece of wood that you've chosen to deify is at the end of the day corruptible, that it will be subject to the elements and one day it will need a date with the orbital sander. That's effectively what he's saying. Doesn't that bother you? You see, our idols are subject to change. Our spouses will one day no longer be with us. And even in the way that we relate to one another, our reactions aren't always predictable. Some days we respond graciously, other days not so graciously. We change. Our careers will shift and change and they often disappoint and there will come a day when you'll have to stop working anyway. And then in our image-obsessed culture, we need to be reminded that no matter what filter you use on Instagram, our bodies will be subject to time and gravity. We won't always look the same. Everything creaturely will wear out like a garment. So where can we turn? Is there anything or anyone we can cling to that will never change? Look again to verses 8 through 11. The words of Isaiah. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. We said that God's people had been in Babylonian exile for decades, right? But in Isaiah 45, in the previous chapter, we're told that God will sovereignly orchestrate Cyrus, the king of Persia, to come and sack the Babylonians, and that this changing of the God will be the means that God would employ to bring rescue to his people. That's what verse 11 actually means. Calling a bird of prey from the east, that is Cyrus. He is the bird of prey from the east. But God's people weren't too happy with this plan. They would have much preferred that God fired up the Concorde and gave them a first-class flight back to Jerusalem, right? They didn't want to be around for this changing of the guard. They'd been through enough. They thought that the Cyrus plan was a weirder move than having Matthew Wade opening the batting. They really weren't interested in what God was up to, right? But God responds to them and says, hey, 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 listen. Stand firm. Do you remember what I've done for you in the past? Do you remember that little episode? Yeah, it's called the Exodus. How how I rescued you out of Egypt with great signs and plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. Do you remember that? 
Do you remember how I asked you to march around the walls of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down? Is that, is that episode still in my file somewhere? Do you remember how I rescued you from Sennacherib's invasion? Listen, I am still the same God. My purposes towards you are good. No one can thwart my plans and I'm asking you to trust me once more. And the reason they can trust him and the reason we can still trust him today is because he's unchanging. Now, what precisely do we mean when we say God is unchanging, right? Now, here I'm going to borrow significantly from John Frame, great theologian. Firstly, God is unchanging in his essential attributes. Let's uh, turn to Psalm 102. Of all you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Think of all the attributes that we adore about Almighty God. They aren't going anywhere. Those attributes you can take to the bank. He will always be good, always be just, always be wise, holy, true, loving, and powerful. But God is also unchanging with respect to his decreed will and his covenant faithfulness. That is to say, the things that he has promised to do, specifically in rescuing his people, he will do. Now, the moment I say that, there may even be some questions or even a little bit of pushback, because it seems like in different parts of Scripture, it looks like God changes his mind from time to time, right? It looks like he doesn't always follow through. For example, look at uh, Exodus uh, 32. This is after the event of the golden calf. This is the words that we read. Verses 9 through 10. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. All right? God said he's going to do something. Scroll down with me. Verse 14. This is after the prayerful intercession of Moses. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. God relented. He, in other words, he, he changed his mind concerning what he would do. Another example comes up in 1 Samuel 15, verse 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. All right, so he's made a declaration about who God is. A few verses later, verse 35 And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Does he have regret or does he not? Which one is it? So how do we navigate texts like this? Because on the surface, it seems that God is subject to a fair bit of change after all. Well, the way we navigate it is to say that with respect to his nature, God is a God who can relent. As John Frame says, relenting is part of God's unchangeable divine nature. You could say he changes his mind in an unchanging way, as curious as that sounds. And practically, we need to remember that sometimes when what we read in Scripture, sometimes it's a straightforward proclamation or prediction, but then other times what appears to be a straightforward prediction is actually a conditional proclamation. We saw that after the golden calf, right? God said that his wrath would burn hot against the people of Israel. But implicit, hidden in the footnotes in this proclamation, 
is the condition that if they repent or if Moses intercedes for them, he will relent. And we can still say that God is unchanging. All right, what about his regret in appointing King Saul over Israel? Was he in two minds about that one? Well, we have to peer through a couple of lenses. Looking through a temporal lens, God expresses grief with respect to the fact that God had, uh, pardon me, that Saul has, had disobeyed God's preceptive will. That is God's law, his precepts. God's preceptive will can be disobeyed. All right? You and I can disobey the Ten Commandments. We should, we shouldn't, but we can. All right? So that's how we can view it through a temporal lens. But then at the same time, we can look at the same event through an eternal lens and God's decreed will. The things that he has decreed are those things that will certainly take place. They're fixed and they cannot change. And God's decreed will in this situation concerning Saul perfectly unfolded. And eventually King David would ascend the throne in place of Saul so that one day Jesus could emerge from the Davidic line and go to the cross for our sins. These are some of the tensions that we have to navigate as we read Scripture. We have to peer through a couple of lenses looking at the same event. Now, no doubt, there's a great degree of mystery in all of this, but we need to remember that God's, God relates to us as one who is infinite, but then he relates to us as a person. And we have to keep that tension in balance. So with all that said, when God declares in verse 11 that he has spoken and, and that he will bring it to pass... The people of God can take him at his word because this is his decreed will and it's grounded in his covenant faithfulness. In that sense, he's unchanging. You see, despite the fact that they are perplexed about the seemingly bizarre methods God will employ to bring about their rescue, God is diverting their attention off their circumstances and reminding them that their salvation is bound up with his nature and not contingent upon the stubborn-hearted nature of his people. Can you imagine... If God's salvific disposition towards us was contingent upon our fidelity, we would all be hellbound. How good a news is this? God does not change with respect to his covenant faithfulness. That's good news for us today. Why doesn't the band come and join me as I close? Listen, I don't know what kind of changes we'll have to navigate this year. But we can take heart knowing that God is not a God who is always changing the terms and conditions of play. He's not a God who is always moving the goalposts. He remains the same. And though the people of Israel showcased a really high degree of stubbornness in the Old Covenant, from which only a remnant would be saved, the new covenant heart of flesh that we've been given in Christ Jesus enables us to respond supernaturally to God. He has written his law on our hearts. And Jesus came to earth and went to the cross to die for our sinful idolatry. And it's because of his death and resurrection that we're able to be made part of his new covenant people. And yet, new heart and all, we still exhibit a fair amount of stubbornness ourselves, don't we? We question what he's up to all the time. But know this, we can be assured that he doesn't change and that even if we are faithless, He remains faithful. We're stubborn, and yet he has stubbornly resolved to save us. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever.